We are reading from Acts 20 and Titus 1, 1 Timothy 3, and 1 Peter 5. And you have the text on the printouts. It is slightly different in places from what I will read. Jared printed directly from the ASV, the American Standard Version that I use. Uh, but I've made some minor adjustments because there are a few places in the ASV that didn't follow the Greek terribly well or just used a word that wasn't accurate or wasn't clear in modern English. So starting with Acts 20, verses 17 to 35, these are God's words. And from Miletus, he that is Paul sent to Ephesus and called to them the elders of the church. And when they were come to him, he said unto them, Ye yourselves know... From the first day that I set foot in Asia, how I was with you all the time, serving the Lord with all lowliness of mind and with tears and with trials that befell me by the plot of the Jews, how I shrank not from declaring unto you everything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus, the anointed. And now, behold... I go bound in the Spirit unto Jerusalem, not knowing the things that shall befall me there, save that the Holy Spirit testifieth unto me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions abide me. But I hold not my life of any account as dear unto myself, so that I may accomplish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that ye all among whom I went about preaching the kingdom, shall see my face no more. Wherefore I testify unto you this day that I am pure from the blood of all men, for I shrank not from declaring unto you the whole counsel of God. Heed yourselves and all the flock in which the Holy Spirit hath made you overseers to shepherd the church of the Lord, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departing, great wolves shall enter in among you, not sparing the flock, And from among your own selves shall men arise, speaking crooked things, to draw away the disciples after them. Wherefore, watch ye, remembering that for three years I ceased not to admonish every one night and day with tears. And now I entrust you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all them that are made holy. I coveted no man's silver or gold or clothing. Ye yourselves know that these hands ministered unto my needs, and them that were with me. In all things I showed you that so laboring ye ought to help the weak, and to remember the words of the Lord Jesus, that he himself said it is more blessed to give than to receive. And now Titus 1, 5 to 14, in which Paul is writing to Titus. For this cause left I thee in Crete, that thou shouldest set in order the things that were wanting, and appoint elders in every city, as I gave thee charge. If any man is blameless, the man of one woman, having children that believe, not accused of debauchery, nor unruly, for the overseer must be blameless as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick to anger, not a wine-bibber, not a bully, not interested in dirty gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, prudent, just, devout, self-controlled, holding to the faithful word according to the teaching, that he may be able both to exhort in the sound doctrine and to reprove the naysayers. For there are many unruly, empty talkers and deceivers, especially they of the circumcision, 
whose mouths must be stopped, who overturn whole houses, teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dirty gain. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, idle gluttons. This testimony is true. For which cause, reprove them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. 1 Timothy 3, 1-10 Faithful is the saying, If a man seeketh the office of an overseer, he desireth a good work. The overseer, therefore, must be without reproach, the man of one woman, temperate, sober-minded, orderly, hospitable, apt to teach, not a wine-bibber, not a bully, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money, ruling well his own house, having his children in submission with all gravity. But if a man knoweth not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being puffed up he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must have good witness with them that are without, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Deacons likewise, grave, not double-tongued, not devoted to much wine, not interested in dirty gain, holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. And let these also first be proved, then let them serve as deacons if they are blameless. And First Peter 5, 1-4 the elders, therefore, among you, I exhort, who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of the anointed, who am also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, exercising oversight not of compulsion, but willingly, in accordance with God, nor yet for dirty gain, but willingly, neither as lording it over those allotted to you, but making yourselves examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd shall appear... Ye shall receive the crown of glory that fadeth not away. These are God's words. You may be seated. It seemed providential that we've just reached a break in John's gospel at a time when many of you have been challenged to justify your interest in joining Redwood and especially when many of you have been challenged to assess whether Jared and myself are qualified to be elders in a church. Given these challenges, I believe it will be helpful both to Jared and myself as potential elders and to yourselves as potential members of Redwood to examine God's counsel on this matter. When I told my wife I would be preaching on eldership, she asked me, bless her heart, if that would not look a little self-serving. I do not feel this way at all. Quite the opposite. This is the first time I am apprehensive about preaching something that I expect my listeners to find agreeable. I am going to lay out for you the purpose and the duties of elders in God's church and the standards by which we must judge men for that office, which means that I am telling you how to judge me. And when you judge me, there is the possibility that you will find me wanting. I do not want you to dismiss that possibility beforehand. You must first hear what God says. His requirements are weighty. You may think that I should get high marks because you like how I teach. But as we will see, elders must be far more than mere imparters of knowledge. There are many gifted teachers who have entered the pastorate with disastrous results. 
I do not believe, uh, I do believe, I do believe that both Jared and myself are qualified to be elders, or I would not presume to be standing here right now, but ultimately it is not for us to say. It is your duty, your weighty obligation to assess me, to assess Jared, and to judge us against God's law. And whether you decide for us or against us cannot be a question of whether you like us or whether we excel in one or two respects. It has to be a question of whether we are truly qualified in all respects. Now, before we move on, let me make a couple of points. Firstly, this will be a long sermon. I do not usually preach at great length, as you know. Not great length. But the present moment does require it. And I sympathize with the mothers who have children. They are going to find this difficult. And I sympathize with the children who are going to be struggling to follow along. The older boys in particular should try to follow along because what are we talking about is essentially a blueprint for mature masculinity. Secondly, I am primarily going to use the term elder as I go forward, but if you pay careful attention to our text, you will see an important point with regard to terminology. Scripture actually uses three words to describe the one office. Elders are overseers and shepherds. These terms are used interchangeably in the text. The elders are told to shepherd the flock in Acts 20 and 1 Peter 5. And Peter describes them, as it were, as under-shepherds or apprentices of Jesus, who is the great shepherd. <laughs> Titus is left in Crete in order to appoint elders in every city. And immediately he is then given the, the qualifications to identify the right kind of man, which are overseers. We can see very clearly from this that elders and shepherds and overseers are all the same thing. An elder is an overseer, is a shepherd. And I also use the term shepherd very deliberately because it is the English term for pastor. You may think that I read from an old Bible because I like old words, but actually that is not the case. I read from an old Bible because it uses words which are more accurate. But... The term pastor is not an accurate word. Pastor just means shepherd in Latin. But translating the Bible into Latin is an odd choice for English speakers. The Latin term pastor is actually Christianese. It is jargon that has taken on a different meaning to the word that scripture uses, which is simply shepherd. The word pastor today actually denotes a different separate office when scripture draws no such distinction and it is also a word that obscures a great deal about the actual nature of the elder, as we will come to see. And this nature is what we need to examine. I'm not going to look at every single qualification that Paul lists. Many of them are self-explanatory. You presumably understand what a novice in the faith is, someone who is new to the faith. I was converted 18 years ago and Jared 12 years ago. You can see, I hope, what a self-willed man is, someone who is stubborn and difficult to reason with or unwilling to change his mind. And you can hopefully tell whether we are like that. You know what hospitable means and what loving money means. 
And hopefully you've figured out that if we're not hospitable, we are oddly eager to have you in our homes because our homes are pretty modest and reveal that if we do love money, we're not especially good at getting it. I want to look at these passages a little more deeply than just itemizing each qualification. We need to know more than simply what traits or skills to look for. We need to know why these traits and skills are the ones that God chose in the first place. One of the great problems of the modern church, which has led to deep institutional corruption and impending collapse, quite frankly, is that the reason for many of the qualifications of elders have been ignored or misunderstood. And this error is born of the same mindset that gave us complementarianism, which just talks about the distinct roles of men and women, rather than about the nature of men and women, which gives rise to these roles, or better word, duties. So it is the nature of elders that I primarily want to focus on today, explained through the lens of some of their important duties. It is because of this focus on the nature of elders that I wanted to read four different passages for this sermon. We normally read just one passage, but... It is important in this case to get a broader and more holistic view of our topic. We need to see not just the qualifications that scripture lays out for elders, but also what those qualifications are for and how they look in action. They're not just for the sake of being able to look good to others. They are for the sake of being able to do good to others. Which leads us to what I consider the most important or at least The most foundational qualification, one which is treated in the modern church as incidental and often as irrelevant, which is that elders must be married, they must have faithful, well-disciplined children who are in submission to them, and they must be able to order their own households well. Why? Paul tells us, if a man knoweth not how to rule his own house... How shall he take care of the church of God? This tells us that the very reason that elders exist in the first place is to rule in the church. 1 Timothy 5.17, let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor. Modern people are very uncomfortable with the word rule. We're okay with men leading, but ruling is another matter entirely. Leading is... Safe, you know, we can just follow if we want to. Rulership is scary because it implies that someone might impose their wills on us. But biblically speaking, this is mistaken for two reasons. Firstly, it is a false dichotomy. Hebrews 13.17 explicitly says, Obey your leaders and submit to them. So leader is not a safe word if you think that it's going to get you out of submitting or the imposition of a will. Obey your leaders and submit to them. Biblically speaking, we are not free to ignore where our leaders would have us go. Secondly, and in a way much more importantly, thinking of rulership as scary is mistaken for the very reason that Hebrews 13.17 goes on to supply, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those that shall give account. That is, account to God. In other words, rulership in Scripture 
certainly is an exercise of power, but it is not an exercise of power that is intended to lord over. It is an exercise of power on behalf of God. Is God a ruler who lords it over his people? Does he abuse those under him? Does he demand things of them that he would never do? Or bully them for his own amusement? Of course not. God is a loving father. That is why 1 Peter 5 warns elders against lording it over their flock. Peter was no doubt profoundly influenced by his Lord Jesus kneeling in front of him and washing his dirty feet before going to the cross and being stripped naked and hung there by nails in his wrists so that Peter could be saved from the wrath of God. Peter understood that biblical rulership is an act of service. Now, do not misunderstand this word service. Biblical rulership is not servant leadership. This is a rotten theology that has seeped into the church from the corporate world. It has no origin in the Bible. It was invented by Robert Greenleaf in 1970, influenced in turn by the syncretist Hermann Hesse's book, Journey to the East. It is nothing but pagan wisdom. Servant leaders never actually do any ruling. The way that it is applied in the church, servant leadership, functionally results in servitude being treated as what leadership is. But biblical leadership is not like this. Biblical leadership means that rulers serve their people by ordering their world as God wants it ordered for their good. This is why kings in the Old Testament are told to uphold the cause of the needy and the fatherless. Rulers serve their people, especially the most vulnerable of them, by rightly wielding the power delegated to them by God so as to establish and maintain order. Rulers serve their people by rightly wielding the power delegated by God to establish and maintain order. Now, to do this, they must first be good at ruling themselves. Hence, we see that an elder must be self-controlled. He must be temperate. He cannot be enslaved to wine. He is not quick-tempered or easily provoked to anger. He is not emotionally fragile. He does not lash out when threatened. He is decisive but not reactive. He doesn't get caught up in the emotions of others. For how then could he rule over them? He is measured and controlled in how he responds to others and in how he responds to his own appetites. He wisely regulates his eating, his media consumption, his buying habits, his internet usage, his exercise, and every other thing in his life. This is worth reflecting on for just a moment, this principle that you cannot rule yourself if you're not competent to rule others. Uh, if you cannot discipline yourself, you cannot discipline others. Either a man rules his appetites and emotions or he is ruled by them. Someone has to be in charge. It's simply a question of who. But how many elders in the modern church are morbidly obese? Certainly many of them. Why? usually because they are gluttonous. It is the unmentionable sin of our day. They just enjoy feasting. 
Doesn't the Bible commend that? Yes, but it also commends fasting as a natural pattern for spiritual discipline. A man who is always feasting and never fasting is not a man who is ruling himself wisely. He is not taking care of himself, and so he is not qualified to take care of anyone else. He is certainly disqualified from eldership. And this term, take care, illustrates for us something that is subtly stated in 1 Timothy 3.5. Rulership means taking care of those under you. Did you notice this detail? Paul explains why elders must be competent householders. He says, essentially, they must rule their houses well in order to prove they can rule the church well. But that is not exactly what he says in 1 Timothy 3.5. Here is what he actually says. There are a couple of words out of place. If a man knoweth not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? In other words... Paul couches the rulership of the church in terms of care, and we could swap it around and it still makes sense. If a man knoweth not how to take care of his own house, how shall he rule the church of God? Rulership is taking care of those beneath you. This is really just a restatement of what I said before, that rulers serve their people by rightly wielding the power delegated to them by God in order to establish and maintain order. That's just a long-winded way of saying rulers use their power to take care of others. The way to tell if a man is suited to this task is to test whether he has shown competence in the same basic task on a smaller scale. So an elder must be a good householder to prove that he is fit for the greater task of ruling the church. He who is faithful in little will be given authority over much. 1 Timothy 3.10 says, Let these also first be proved, then let them serve. Now this is referring to deacons. But if it applies to the lesser office of deacon, how much more to the greater office of elder? If a man is to undertake the great work of discipling and caring for the church, the household of God, he must have first proved himself to be competent in discipling and caring for himself and his household. Why would you choose a man for the task of shepherding a whole church when he has proved himself a failure at shepherding his own family? No, he is disqualified. Or why would you choose a man who has no household at all? He is not yet qualified. What can we conclude from this? Well, to be an elder, a man must be obedient to Ephesians 6.4. He must be raising his children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. He cannot, for example, be outsourcing their education to the state, which will ensure that his children's souls are destroyed through close instruction and enculturation into the depraved ways of the world. He must be teaching them God's word and God's ways, discipling them when they stray physically, if necessary, as Proverbs requires. If his own children are insubordinate and rebellious, what hope does he have to keep unrelated adults in line? He also must be a man who has learned some of the basic lessons of fatherhood. In writing to the Corinthians, Paul laments how they need fewer teachers in the faith and more fathers, and that for this reason he is sending them Timothy. An elder represents the fatherhood of God to his congregation. Fatherhood, of course, is a spiritual reality, not a biological reality. Biological fathers are modeled after 
the spiritual fatherhood of God, but so are elders. Remember, symbolic realism. The physical images the spiritual. But what use is a man to be a father in the church if he can be deceived by the sorts of tactics that the average father has to sort through every day? Suppose, for instance, completely hypothetical, that your eldest son is actually sometimes beastly to your youngest son and makes him scream, and every time you hear the screaming, you have to come and discipline him. And suppose that your youngest son, being a cunning sinner himself, discovers that if he screams for no reason at all, his father will come and still discipline his older brother. A man who assumes that the kid who is screaming cannot be also the kid who is doing the sinning is not qualified to be an elder. And yet, is this not what we see throughout the church today? The person who can act the most hurt is the one who gets the compassion, and the person who looks the most mean is the one who gets punished? And this leads us into the second qualification that is foundational to anyone who would rule on God's behalf. An elder must be just. He must know what is good. He must love what is good. He must walk in the ways of wisdom and righteousness. He cannot be a bully or be willing to pervert truth and justice for the sake of personal advantage. This qualification has always been foundational to God's rulers. When Jethro advises Moses on setting up rulers beneath him to take the load off, he specifically for the purpose of judging disputes, he says, Moreover, thou shalt provide out of all the people able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating unjust gain, and place over them to be rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. That's Exodus 18.21. This is so utterly critical to the nature of biblical rulership that the rulers before the monarchy of Israel are literally called judges. A ruler is someone who is capable of judging wisely. He is a judge. And when the monarchy is established, God already has laws in place requiring his kings to write out his entire law by hand. Have you seen how long the Torah is when you actually have to write it out by hand? I started doing it once. I got to Genesis 8. (laughs) He had to write it out by hand, get it checked by the Levites to check that it was accurate in order to drill this law into him and in order for him to have a copy to reflect on continually. This is Deuteronomy 17. When he sitteth upon the throne of his kingdom... He shall write him a copy of this law in a book out of that which is before the, Le- the priests and the Levites. And it shall be with him, and he shall read therein all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear Yahweh his God, to keep all the words of this law and these statutes, to do them, so that his heart be not lifted up against his brothers, and that he turn not aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left, to the end that he may prolong his days in his kingdom, he and his sons in the midst of Israel." A ruler, and thus an elder, must fear God, he must know God's law, and he must submit to God's law. Biblical standards of justice rule his life. He knows that it is wicked to nurse a grudge against someone rather than confronting them openly. Leviticus 19.17 
He knows that no charge may be established against someone except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Deuteronomy 19.15 He knows that no judgment can be made against someone without hearing his side of the story and conducting a diligent investigation. Deuteronomy 19.16-18 and John 7.51 He knows that the ninth commandment forbids receiving and countenancing evil reports, stopping our ears against just defense and evil suspicion. It's the Westminster Larger Catechism. He knows that it is wicked to spread a false report, to confirm malicious witnesses, and to pervert justice by following the crowd rather than speaking out, Exodus 23, 1-2. Not only does he know these things, he insists upon them. In the Western church, enormous numbers of elders flagrantly disregard these standards of justice. They either do not know them, or they do not care about them. And sadly, I have witnessed firsthand Many occasions of elders in many churches across the world willingly fabricating false reports, happily receiving such reports without the slightest investigation, and openly spreading these reports, adding their voices to them without hesitation when they believe that they can gain advantage from it. Slander, backbiting, Manipulation, taking sides based on who's who rather than what's what, placing ambition over truth, choosing reputation over obedience, and the survival of the little empires that men have built up rather than the purity of God's kingdom. These are all natural fleshly desires, but unfortunately also shameful realities of the institutional church of the West today. I said to Yaku recently that we need to be willing to nuke Redwood from orbit if the alternative is saving it by breaking God's law. You cannot save a church by breaking faith with God. You submit to his law and you trust him to raise you up again if that is his will. So elders must be just. But as we see from the example of the screaming toddler getting his brother in trouble, administering justice involves more than mere insight into the ways of righteousness. An elder must also have insight into the ways of sin. It is impossible to adjudicate hard cases if you are a chump, if you're a sucker, if you're easily taken in and you can be manipulated. So an elder must have some skill in discerning when people are lying or spinning the truth. He must have some skill in knowing how to handle conflicts and disagreements. He must be sufficiently practiced in administering justice, especially in his own home, that he has the strength and authority to do so without becoming confused or fearful and without causing more chaos through overconfidence in his own wisdom. He must have something of Solomon in him, knowing what is in man, even to the point of suggesting a baby bisection, to discover the truth. He must be shrewd and even cunning. He cannot be a man who is easily swayed by optics, how things look, rather than ethics, what is right. He cannot be a man who, if you gave him some video footage of someone shooting someone, he jumps to the conclusion that the guy doing the shooting is in the wrong. The Lord Jesus tells us, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment, John 7.24. So an elder if given such footage, should want to know, what is the context of this video? Is the man defending himself? Is this part of a larger fight? What are they fighting about? 
Who are the different sides? Because obviously in any fight, many of the things that a man does can look bad from the outside without being bad. War is hell. Optics and ethics are completely different. This is why we're told to judge with right judgment and not by appearances. So an elder does not confuse justice with what C.S. Lewis called spiritual prudery. He does not replace the Ten Commandments with an eleventh, thou shalt be nice. He does not replace finding out the facts with finding out who can complain most loudly about being offended. He does not replace judging whether behavior broke God's law with judging whether behavior negatively impacted someone. This is the same kind of thinking that got us the seeker-sensitive movement. You know, sinners are negatively impacted by being told about their sins, so no more of that. This kind of thinking essentially makes cry bullies the guardians of truth and error. Whoever can turn on the waterworks most effectively must be in the right, and so that person gets to decide what is right. Which brings us to the qualification that most people really think of when they think about elders. An elder must be apt to teach. Now, you might not see the connection that I just made, but we will see it in a second. An elder must be skilled in doctrine, but notice how Scripture's requirement for teaching is missing one element that is commonly taken for granted today and contains another that is almost universally ignored today. Firstly, Scripture does not require seminary training or fluency in the original languages of the Bible. Rather, skill in teaching is a gift of the Holy Spirit. Advanced training is certainly a means that God uses to develop this gift. But the Bible imposes no requirement for it. Paul instructed Titus to appoint elders among relatively recent Gentile converts who certainly would not have spoken Hebrew, even if they had had copies of the Hebrew Bible. But secondly, and more importantly, an elder must be capable of refuting and silencing false teachers even ones who are trained theologians like the circumcision party were. Notice in 1 Timothy the sequence of thought. An elder must hold to the faithful word according to the teaching that he may be able both to exhort in the sound doctrine and to approve the naysayers. Why? Because of the consequences of false teaching. For there are many unruly, empty talkers and deceivers whose mouths must be stopped who overturn whole houses. In other words, an elder must know sound doctrine, be good at communicating sound doctrine to the faithful, and be good at refuting false doctrine for the sake of the faithful, whether inside or outside the church. As Kelvin famously said, a pastor has two voices, one for gathering sheep and one for driving off the wolves. Vigorously refuting error is part of the elder's job description. It is the very reason Titus was sent to Crete. It is a form of discipline. The man who refuses to discipline his son to keep him from evil hates his son. The elder who refuses to engage in polemics to keep the church from error, to keep entire houses from being overturned, hates the church, hates the sheep. Think of the examples that we're given to imitate from Scripture. Jesus made statements that savagely damaged the Pharisees' reputations. He called them filthy devils, blind fools, sons of hell, 
Paul wished the circumcision party would just lop the whole thing off while they were at it. And as we've just seen, directly after giving the qualifications for elder, which include things like being kind and good and so forth, he went on to say, as a qualified elder himself, that the people of Crete are all evil beasts and lazy gluttons. John and Jude described false teachers and unbelievers as whores, dogs, and dumb animals. Elijah wondered whether Baal might be too busy going number two to light a fire. Amos called wicked women fat cows. And Ezekiel described Israel lusting after lovers in such graphic language that I prefer not to repeat it for the sake of our children. These examples model Christian virtue and piety, especially for elders. But by our culturally accepted standards of discourse, they are all totally unacceptable. They are hurtful, not winsome. They raise concerns about tone. This is nothing new. In every age, there are those who would prevent elders from teaching as Scripture commands them to. Consider what Thomas McCree writes of the great Scottish reformer John Knox. The sermons of Knox were very powerful, though delivered in what to many appeared harsh language. He was not ignorant that some of his friends thought him too severe, nor was he disposed to vindicate every expression which he used. But he was of the opinion that the times required great plainness of speech, and that under the smoothness and sweetness of manner recommended by some, snares lurked. Indeed, Scripture reminds us that it is by smooth talk and flattery that false teachers, false elders, false shepherds deceive the hearts of the naive, Romans sixteen seventeen to 18. An elder whose speech never ruffles any feathers is an elder who is not representing God. This brings us to, I'll make it a brief, but a very significant point about the kind of man an elder must be. Elders are appointed as guardians of the sheep, both in terms of doctrine and piety. They cannot be bullies. They cannot be thugs. They do not enjoy fighting for the thrill of it. They most certainly do not prey on the sheep. They do sometimes have to clout a sheep with their crook to keep them from falling into a ditch. But they love the sheep. But elders are to be fighters. This is symbolized in their very namesake. We've seen that the word pastor just means shepherd. And we learn much of the kind of man a godly shepherd is from David. In 1 Samuel 17 to 30, uh, 34 to 36, he says, David came unto Saul, said unto Saul, sorry, thy servant was keeping his father's sheep. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb out of the flock, I went after him and smote him and delivered it out of his mouth. And when he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and smote him and slew him. Thy servant smote both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be as one of them, seeing he hath defied the armies of the living God. And David said, Yahweh that delivered me out of the paw of the lion and out of the paw of the bear, he will deliver me out of the hand of this Philistine. Not only was David willing to fight and kill a giant, he was willing to fight and kill grizzly bears and lions. This man was a serious badass. Yet you know what most Christians would say today if he were alive. He's so violent. He's obviously disqualified from eldership. 
Can't have such a rough fellow representing Christ. We need a genteel man. Someone at home in the ivory tower, or at least in a comfy armchair by the fire reading theology books. No. David is a model shepherd. A model elder. A model ruler. A model king. In the modern day, the closest concept we have to an ancient shepherd is probably a cowboy. Now, how many people would be comfortable with a cowboy in the pulpit? Well, to change the example slightly, a soldier, 2 Timothy 2 and 1 Timothy 6. Now, I'm not saying that elders must be physically capable of the things that cowboys and soldiers are capable of. I'm saying they must be constitutionally, mentally, that sort of a man. They must be willing and able to fight for the sheep. They must be willing and able to stand up in front of a giant Philistine who is defying the armies of the living God. And right now we have a giant Philistine, the state, defying the armies of the living God, the church, and go toe-to-toe with him because he trusts in God and he has courage that God will uphold his cause. Elders must be willing and able to engage in spiritual warfare that involves assaulting the gates of Hades, tearing down strongholds, destroying arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. It's Matthew 16, 18, and 2 Corinthians 10, 5. Now, there cannot be men who start fights for fun. They don't get embroiled in fights because they're quick-tempered. They don't get sucked in easily. But they cannot be afraid to get into a fight nor to slaughter the enemy. However much the enemy gets upset and complains that it's not winsome or loving and calls them bigots and haters. And they also cannot be phased by other Christians decrying how they are damaging their witness. The unwillingness of elders in the modern church to sound mean and their refusal to fight to slaughter false teachers that are creeping into our churches, feminism, wokeism, all of it, is shameful and disqualifying according to scripture. Now, this raises a problem. Because right here, our soft evangelifish leaders will point to 1 Timothy 3 7, which says, Moreover, he, the elder, must have good witness from them that are without, those outside the church, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. You see, if an elder is reproached by those outside the church, he is disqualified. What? How foolish do these men think God is? What sniveling, self-serving, lying, blasphemous rhetoric? Do they think that all the enemies of Christ need to do is to get together and reproach an elder and he must step down? Is it from the church's enemies that the word of God comes? Of course not. Elders must indeed be the sorts of men who tend to be well spoken of by unbelievers. But by nature, they simply cannot be the sort of men who are well spoken of by the church's enemies. Not all those outside the church are enemies of the church. How many people do you know? Average Kiwis. Perfectly pleasant, reasonable people. They respect traits like courage and hard work and intelligence and wisdom. The traits of an elder. I bet you know many. Well, let me give you a secular example. Consider Jordan Peterson. He is beloved by millions of unbelievers precisely because he has exhibited the fighting qualities of an elder. 
I'm not saying he's qualified for eldership in God's church, but he has exhibited the kind of backbone an elder is required to have. He is not an invertebrate. His willingness to stand firmly and defend not just what he believes, but the people who are being preyed upon by these vile, woke ideologies has earned him the admiration of millions. His willingness to stand up for young men and help them regardless of the screeching of his enemies has earned him a good reputation. What, with his enemies? No, of course not. They vilify him. But does he have a good reputation in general? Yes, to the extent that his enemies have not been able to completely smear it. In the same way, elders must be respected by common folk and hated by their enemies. This is the only way to make sense of what scripture itself says without turning it into a hot mess of contradiction. To require that the church's enemies praise its elders would disqualify the very man upon whom church eldership is modeled, Jesus himself, the great shepherd of the sheep, who is crucified as a criminal. And in the same way, his prophets and apostles, whom we are to imitate, they were whipped and imprisoned and stoned and killed for boldly preaching God's law and gospel, for fighting for the sheep against the wolves. We saw in Acts 20, for instance, Paul testifies, he suffered many trials because the Jews kept plotting to kill him. Was he disqualified from being an elder because he had the reproach of the Jews, didn't have a good reputation? No. Elders must act as guardians of doctrine of piety, and ultimately of people, as Jesus, the apostles, and the prophets did. And this should produce a reputation with our enemies like that of Jesus and the Pharisees, Elijah with the wicked Ahab, here comes that troubler of Israel, John the Baptist with Herod, or Paul with Festus. Elders should be troublers of the ways of the wicked. Elders represent Christ himself and should never be ashamed of receiving the same cheap treatment as Christ from their enemies. No, they should be ashamed to be well thought of by the wicked. And finally, we have come full circle because we see once again how elders must love their people. Everything they do is motivated by love of God and love of their congregations. Love is expressed in action. Shepherds live among their sheep. They know their sheep by name. They know the individual ways and needs of each sheep. They know this one's kind of a pain and this one's not a problem. We see in 1 Peter 5 that elders must shepherd the flock of God, exercising oversight, being examples for the flock. And Paul in Acts says that he, to be able to do this, they must be alert and pay careful attention to all the flock to care for the church of God. He is not describing pulpit ministry on Sunday. He says specifically, he went house to house daily, not ceasing, admonishing them with tears. Scripture, in other words, mandates that elders be involved in close discipleship of those in their churches in such a way that none of their members are neglected. It isn't a cult-like oversight. It is a fellowship for the sake of discipleship for the sake of the church's souls. And this is a requirement that many churches ignore completely. Many elders have virtually no involvement with the members of their church. Their ministry is focused on once a week preaching and they've got some programs where they outsource all of the other kinds of discipleship to other people. But there's no everyday discipleship. 
And often, even when members come to the, the pastors or the elders for help and counsel, they're given very little care. And that's because many elders love preaching, not people. And this too is a disqualifying sin. We've covered a lot of ground, and I've obviously had to focus on the things that I think are the most important, especially for understanding what the nature of an elder is. You're very welcome to ask me about other things afterwards, of course. But I hope that you do have a good, solid understanding of the fundamental purpose of an elder, the kind of man that God requires him to be. If you do have questions or objections, I would not be surprised. In fact, I hope you do, because it means that you are thinking and making connections at a deeper level. And Jared and I are both here to help you think those through. How could we not be, given what Scripture says? But ultimately, you have the heavy task of assessing us according to what you have learned. It is not a light thing. I hope you see that now. But as you're making that assessment, and this is where the sermon gets kind of long, there is one question in particular that you may, and as I say, I hope you will be asking, which is, don't elders have to be ordained by other elders? You know, what difference does it make if you think that we are qualified to be elders if you're willing to entrust your souls to us if you are not authorized to ordain us for that duty anyway? It's a moot point. So to close, I'm going to try to answer this final question for you. Ephesians 4, 11 to 12 tells us explicitly that elders or shepherds are given as gifts to God, gifts by God, to the church. It is God himself who gives this gift to equip his people for ministry and to build up his body on earth. In other words, eldership is a spiritual gift bestowed by God, which means that it is not bestowed by the laying on of hands. It isn't ordination that bestows the gift of eldership. The purpose of the laying on of hands if we go back to the Old Testament, Leviticus 1.4, you see that the purpose of the laying on of hands is to appoint a representative. He shall lay his hand upon the head of the burnt offering and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Symbolically, when you lay on your hands, you impart something of yourself. In ordination, what is imparted is authority and identity. Authority to act as a representative of God on behalf of the local body with whom he is identified. This is the origin of the laying on of hands that we see in the New Testament to ordain a man. And the Holy Spirit is also imparted through the laying on of hands, since he is bound up with the authority and identity of God's representatives, being the one from whom that authority ultimately comes, and the one who unites them all in one identity in Christ. So for this reason, you could certainly say that a man receives the gift of eldership formally, and perhaps even in greater measure through the laying on of hands, as Paul indicates of Timothy in 1 Timothy 4 and 2 Timothy 1. I won't read those passages for the sake of time. The gift itself, however, comes not from the men laying hands on him, but from God himself. It must be recognized prior to his being ordained, or otherwise he would not have had hands laid on him in the first place, which we see specifically in 1 Timothy 5.22, do not hastily lay hands on a man. He must be tested, he must prove himself, as we saw of deacons, before he is called. 
Now, ordinarily, it is true. The responsibility and authority to recognize and ordain a man is invested in the existing elders of of a congregation. And this is why the normal and ideal means of ordination is always the laying on of hands by previously ordained elders. But those elders themselves serve at the consent of the church. A church as a body may dismiss an elder as head over them. Equally then, a church as a body must be able to ordain an elder as head over them. This is just one application of the keys of the kingdom, which Jesus himself invests in the local congregation in Matthew eighteen seventeen to 18. The power of the keys is ordinarily administered by the elders, but it is held by the congregation. So where no, con- no, where no elder exists, the authority to recognize and ordain him falls directly to the congregation itself. And this is actually an application of a broader principle of rulership that is articulated throughout Scripture, that under God's law, rulers are ratified by the people, and they govern at the consent of the people, and responsibility for their governance falls on the people. Look at Deuteronomy 17 again, verses 14 to 15. When thou art come unto the land which Yahweh thy God giveth thee, and shall possess it, and shall dwell therein, and shall say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are round about me. Thou shalt surely set him over thee, whom Yahweh thy God shall choose. One from among thy brothers shalt thou set king over thee. You see, the congregation of Israel is authorized to set a king over them. It is from their election of him that his kingship derives. Now, if this is true of a king of an entire nation, how much more an elder in a church? Indeed, The principles of kingship are actually echoed in Paul's qualifications for elders. In Deuteronomy 17, 16 to 17, the king is forbidden from multiplying three things, wives, war horses, and wealth. In Titus 1 and 1 Timothy 3, elders are required, among other things, to be a man of one woman, to not be bullies, and not to be lovers of money. Many of the other qualifications for elders are drawn from those of judges in Exodus 18.21, as we've seen. And elders, just like judges, must be able men, fearing God, loving truth, hating dirty gain. So the ordination of elders is based on the concept of corporate responsibility and representation. This is unfortunately a concept that is not very well understood by modern Christians, and we will get to it in John's Gospel. But we'll get to it because it's the very foundation of the Gospel. It's how we can be considered one body with Christ and share in his righteousness. So it cannot be that a validly ordained elder is only one who can trace a continuous line all the way back to the laying on of hands by an apostle of Jesus. Not only does this contradict God's law and how rulership works, but it would obviously disqualify vast numbers of elders in denominations across the world today, and it would make it impossible, for instance, to form a new church in an area where no contact with another church exists. So all of that to say, if a group of Christians covenants together as a church and then lays hands on the men that they wish to represent them, those men are the invalidly ordained elders. So it is up to you to make the solemn decision whether that is what is wise, what is right, and what is honoring to God.